Thank you, Garrett. Thank you, Danny and Praise Team, for leading us in song, and our AV team, who takes care of us every Sunday. A couple of thoughts before we get started uh, this morning. Um, This afternoon, I want to do a plug for our new ministry, the Lord's new ministry called Cornerstone. And uh, it's one hour via Zoom, and everybody is invited to join us. And uh, this afternoon, we're going to be talking about uh, discipleship according to Jesus. What is discipleship according to Jesus? Can you be a disciple if you're not a member of the local church? Can you be a disciple if you're not bringing others to Jesus? Can you be a disciple if, or can we call ourselves disciples if we're not making disciples? And so um, please join us. I think that'll be an encouragement, and maybe you can gather with friends over a cup of coffee and Zoom and join us and uh, ask us your questions. The second thing I want to draw to your attention this morning, um, those of you uh, who visited our church the last few weeks, as part of our anniversary, we gave out a few books. One of them was Sinclair uh, Ferguson's To Seek and to Save. Uh, If you did not get a copy, I believe you can still reach out to Ryan and he will get copies of the books that we gave out. This is one of them. This is a devotional for Easter and it begins on Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday starts this Wednesday, if I am correct. And so uh, the idea of this is that we as a church, with each day set apart, could walk through a lesson from the Gospel of Luke for the month in advance to prepare our hearts to enjoy to the fullest Easter. Okay, so I encourage you, if you don't have that, please get it, and uh, let's do that together. Well, this morning is Valentine's Day, and I wish for all of you some good chocolate. And in honor of Valentine's Day, we return to Genesis 3 to talk about the judgment and the justice of our great God. Now, I know when you think of Valentine's Day and you think of romantic dinners and candlelight and uh, nice walks on the beach and uh, diamond earrings and all the other things that are associated, flowers, roses, and all of the things that used to make All my single friends go into a depression on Valentine's Day each year. Okay, as we think of those, far from our mind is the justice and the judgment and the holy wrath of God. Um, And yet, if we go to the Psalms that were mentioned this morning and that Danny led us through, And the songs that we just sang, and as we think about Psalm 33, our theme song for our anniversary. Psalm 33, the psalmist calls God's people to shout for joy in the Lord, to praise and give thanks to the Lord, to sing to Him a new song. Why? In verse 4 through 6, he says, For the word of the Lord is upright, All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And what the psalmist does here 
is he draws this connection. And he draws a connection, which frequently we, we like to overlook, between the justice and righteousness of the Lord and the love of the Lord. Now, this has been a year not only of COVID-19, but this has been the year of social justice, Black Lives Matter, Make America Great Again. This has been the issue where America has been divided and angered over this issue of justice, the lack of parity. Life is not fair in America. Surprise, surprise, breaking news. Yet as we come and listen to the psalmist, which is so necessary for us, brothers and sisters, because this is God speaking to us, he points out that the reason the people of God who are living in a fallen and a wicked and a unjust world, the reason God's people living in these dark times have reason to celebrate and rejoice and give thanks and jump for joy is because their hope is not in the justice of men. But instead, their hope is in the love of the Lord. His love for righteousness and justice. His love that is just and is right. His love, his steadfast love that fills the world. That is the basis of our joy and our hope. A love that is far different, dare I say, than much of the love that we look for or that we celebrate on Valentine's Day. A love many times which is self-serving and is all about validating how special we are as opposed to the love of the Lord that is sacrificial, that is self-giving, not self-taking, that is forgiving and gracious, a love that is costly because it is just and it is right. This is the love that God gives his people and those who place their trust in him rather than the things or the people of this world. And this is a love that we begin to see in Genesis chapter 3, with the judgment that God brings on the sin and the sinners of this world. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we will start reading. Well, it's Valentine's Day. Let me be generous. We'll start reading right at the beginning, verse 1. And we'll go to verse 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband 
who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Our first point uh, that we're going to go through this morning and I probably will need the AV team's help to get me to that first slide if we have it. It's about the justice of the Lord. It's what we've read in the first part of chapter 3. The Lord God's justice exposes and condemns both sin and sinners. With his word, the Lord God's justice exposes and condemns both sin and sinners. And that's much of what we've read at the beginning of this passage. Near the end of my medical training, I had the privilege of working on the vascular surgery team. One evening, a Catholic priest came into the emergency room with the simple complaint of abdominal pain. Later that evening, we were in the operating room racing against the clock to cut open his belly in order to expose and remove and replace a ruptured aortic aneurysm, the main artery or vessel from the heart that goes through the middle of your body and provides blood to the entirety of your body. Why did we do this? We were trying to save a man's life. And it would be unloving to pretend that this was just a tummy ache. Sir, it's no big deal. You're right, it's just a stomach ache. Take a couple of pills of Pepto-Bismol and call me in the morning. And yet, brothers and sisters, when it comes to our sin we believe many times that people are being unloving or unkind or harsh when they come alongside and expose or even would suggest that there are things in our life that are not pleasing to the Lord 
or destructive to ourselves or destructive to other people. We get offended with that. And our propensity, and the propensity of all of us, myself included, is to say that these things are no big deal. We try and, like Adam and Eve, cover and conceal our sin. We try and minimize it. We try and blame shift. We try and say everybody else is to blame except me. And as we do that, we're trying to make the point our sin is no big deal. Go away. We will fix it by ourselves. And we'll get it sorted out. It's a shameful thing to bring someone's sin into the open. Yet the good news of Genesis 3, brothers and sisters, is that in love, the Lord God draws near to the first man and woman. And he draws near to them as a loving father. He draws near to them as a good physician. He draws near to them as a good shepherd. He draws near to them as a wise and righteous judge. Now, we usually divorce that side of God. I'll take the father, I'll take the car, I'll take the condominium, I'll take the paycheck and the career. But the judge aspect, we would like to separate and make that far away. And that's the propensity of our heart and deceit. We're always dividing things and splitting them up and picking and choosing what parts of the scripture we want and what we don't. But in Genesis 3, what we just read and what we're going to go through today, we're going to see how God's love is manifested in his role in our lives as a just judge. He draws near to do what we will not and cannot do for ourselves, which is rightly expose and condemn our sin for what it truly is. A deadly betrayal and breaking of our relationship with God and His Word. Brothers and sisters, that's what our sin is, big or small, any deviation from the Word of God in our thoughts, in our desires, in our words and actions, what people see and what they don't see, any of those things. It's a deadly betrayal and breaking of our relationship with God and His Word. And like a forest fire, it starts in our hearts and our minds, brothers and sisters, but it does not stop there. And it's a fire that we cannot put out. And it destroys not just ourselves, but anything that is close to us. Our families, our children, our ministries, our churches, everything that's there. That is what sin is and what it does. And for sin to be dealt with properly, for there to be hope, for it to be addressed, we need to see it for what it is. There was a time and era where there was a fad where everybody was deep frying turkeys. Came out of Texas, I was told. I had a friend from Texas who said, we've got to do this. Got to fry these turkeys. It's the best turkey you'll ever have. Inject it with all the stuff, the big huge kit filled with grease. And I had a patient of mine who was uh, a retired fireman who had been injured on duty, had disability and, and was off of work for serving for fighting fires. And he shared with me, he was just absolutely horrified. 
Why? Because he was a fireman and he'd seen people die in fires. And he explained to me the fire risk of having a huge vat of grease in the backyard on this little stand. And, and he was freaked out and he was just, oh my goodness. But he appreciated the consequence. And brothers and sisters, that's what right condemnation is about. It's about pointing out to us and highlighting how bad some things are, even if we can't see it, in love to show us the devastation of what it's going to do to us and to others. Most importantly, our relationship with God, because when we lose that relationship with God, brothers and sisters, we lose everything. And so beginning with the first man, and then the first woman, and then the serpent, with his word, the Lord God gently exposes in verses 8 through 14 just how sinful and just how self-righteous and just how self-destructive his creatures have become even as they try to blame everyone and everything else for their sin, including the Lord God. There's a saying that does the rounds in my house. Dad, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And let me tell you, as soon as I hear those words, I start worrying. After exposing their sinfulness, the Lord God then justly condemns both sin and sinners. And his condemnation begins in verse 14, where the first sin began. God gets to the root of things. And with the serpent and its lies, this is where God's condemnation begins before he gets to next the woman and finally the man whom he which we'll see in the weeks to come, holds more accountable than anyone else. In Genesis 3.1, the Lord God explains to us that the serpent is, in fact, God's creation, his creation. The serpent is a beast of the field, craftier and more clever, Genesis 3.1, than any other creature the Lord God had made. But as Genesis 3 and the rest of Scripture shows, this serpent was, in fact, willingly serving as the mouthpiece of Satan and Satan's lies. Revelation 12.9 refers to that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. We see that repeatedly brought up Old Testament through New Testament. And it's worth being mindful here for a minute, brothers and sisters, that we to act as Satan's mouthpieces, his ambassadors, his apostles, and his representatives, every time we think or speak his lies rather than the truth of God. Whoa, Pastor Mark. Brothers and sisters, when what comes out of our mouth is not the truth of God's word or the good news of Jesus Christ, Whatever else that comes out, when we speak the devil's lies, we are acting as his mouthpiece, his representative, his apostles. In our marriages, our families, with our children, our place of work, our friends. And this is why Jesus, in Matthew 16, refers to Simon Peter, right after he's confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
when Peter tries to pull him and stop him from going to the cross, Jesus says, get behind me, what? Satan. Condemned by Jesus in the New Testament, condemned by his Father in the Old Testament. And in verse 14, the Lord God's judgment and condemnation of the serpent begins with the words in verse 14, because you have done this. Because you have done this. And it's a reference to the deceit of the first woman. It's a reference to the lies that have come out of the serpent's mouth in order to exalt the serpent and remove God from the picture and allow the serpent's words to rule over creation instead of God's words in, in light of the serpent's seduction, the deception, because that's what's right before in verse 13. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, deceived the woman and brought her to the place to disobey my word. With these words, the Lord God holds the serpent accountable and responsible not only for what has come out of its mouth, but also the consequences of its words. I highlight this, brothers and sisters, because what we've seen Adam and Eve do, and what we all do, is we try to divorce our words from their consequences. We try to divorce our intent or our thoughts from our actions. It's not wrong to have sinful thoughts as long as I don't act on them. It's not wrong for me to lust after a woman or have homosexual desires as long as I don't act or consummate it. What's wrong with you? I'm just struggling with sin. It's not wrong to have those things. And we see them, brothers and sisters, on Christian websites. And the excuses go on and on when someone does something that's bad or hurt someone. I didn't mean to. I didn't intend to. I didn't know better. As if somehow ignorance of either the word of the Lord or the consequence of the action diminishes the damage that is affected to others through our words, our thoughts, our deeds. And Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, cuts straight to the core, and he holds his disciples accountable for murder and adultery just by virtue of holding anger in their heart and not forgiving and not reconciling or for lusting after a woman in their heart even if they don't act on it. It is condemned. Thoughts, deeds, actions. And it is held accountable, not just so I want us to be careful, brothers and sisters, because we very frequently either excuse ourselves or others where we say, well, they didn't mean to, or I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to get caught. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do without you getting hurt. But guess what? Sin doesn't work that way, brothers and sisters. Fire doesn't work that way. And God wants his children to know that. You play with fire, you are going to get burned. You, your family, your house, and everyone. That's what a loving father does for his 
children gently, graciously, but very, very clearly. And we see Jesus does this with the disciples because he is one with the Father. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says to the disciples, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word they speak. Not, I didn't mean to offend you, with all due respect. And brothers and sisters, what we're held accountable to that Jesus is talking about here, we're not held accountable to other people's feelings or what they think. We are being held accountable to the character and the word of the Lord. His standard, not the standard of men. And to the serpent, the Lord God says, because you have done this, cursed are you. Cursed are you. Curse, you know, Danny talked about blessing this morning as he shepherded us. And he talked about the blessing of forgiveness. Curse is the opposite of blessing. And in the mouth of the Lord, a curse is a public declaration of God's condemnation of both our sin and our sinfulness. A curse in the mouth of the Lord is a public declaration of God's condemnation of both our sin and our sinfulness. It is a public condemnation, public, in front of many, not right over here, public legal, binding. It is a public, forensic condemnation that publicly sets apart the sinner as guilty and deserving of God's punishment. As guilty and deserving of God's punishment. When you go through the Old Testament, when someone committed adultery, when someone stole, when someone was involved in idolatry and the secrecy of their tent. Depending on the sin, you go through the law, you see that God prescribes in certain circumstances that those people get brought out in the kahal, the assembly, the ecclesia, those who have been set apart for their sin to be condemned publicly and punished publicly in front of everyone. Why? Is it a motivation for shame culture? Are we acting like the Muslims in a theocracy where we're cutting off hands for theft? No. The Lord is publicly showing the children who he loves that this sin that is being done in a tent privately is affecting the entire community. Men, when a husband gets drunk and comes home and sleeps on his couch overnight and his children see that, who does that affect? Is his sin private? When he cheats on his spouse and he covers it up, is that sin private? Our sin affects our relationship with the Lord and it affects everyone around us. It is unloving and destructive. And God in love is protecting the community and he's bringing it out and he's calling sin for what it is. Some of you have been reading the news Christianity Today and other updates of a famous apologist and evangelist, Ravi Zacharias, 
who after his death, his organization, Ravis Zacharias International Ministries, came out and confirmed that he was, in fact, involved with many women and had the pictures of many women on his cell phone and his computer. That by all accounts, by the admission of his own board and the legal firm involved in defending him and them after his death, that he was living a double life and he was living a lie. For a brief period in time in Canada, I went and attended the same church that Ravi Zacharias attended. And he married one of the elder's daughters. And we used to see his children on Sunday. And he used to teach Sunday school classes, a guest Sunday school teacher, and taught my older brother on one occasion. I was at the stadiums where he preached and had friends who went to see him and go to Ligonier where he was the guest of R.C. Sproul, interviewed by Eric Metaxas, on and on and on the list goes. Conservative evangelicalism, the Indian Billy Graham, as some like to refer to him as, and frequently speaking about the Old Testament and the morality of the Bible. and yet living a lie that was being covered up. And as we consider that and the damage that it does, and you read the reports, in fact, one of the ways in which allegedly he tried to cover things up was to tell people who he was perpetrating this sin against that they should not tell other people because many people, if the word got out, would lose their salvation or the effect of his ministry would be damaged. But what's being brought out now is not just his sin, but the sin of the board and everybody who was around him for turning a blind eye to this. For behavior and red flag behaviors, including being a part owner of the spas that he went to to perpetrate these things, nobody wanted to deal with it, nobody wanted to ask the questions, nobody wanted to confront, nobody wanted to go down that path. Complicit, brothers and sisters, as we all are. And the Lord in the Old Testament makes the point that when we turn a blind eye to the sin of others, we are our brother's keeper, the Lord is actually going to hold us accountable for the sins that we don't bring our brothers aside and say we've got concerns over this. That's the burden, brothers and sisters, of the elders and the leaders of the church. As we come back to Genesis 3, the Lord shows us if there is to be any real deliverance from sin, brothers and sisters, if there's going to be any real protection for sinners, if there's going to be protection for the weak and the orphans and the widows and the least among us and the vulnerable, sin and sinfulness must be exposed and condemned for what it is according to God's word. Not minimized, not trivialized, not I didn't mean to, or if this gets out, it's going to cause so much damage, and let's cover it up and cover it up and cover it up. And this is what Psalm 32 that Danny led us through this morning is all about. 
that blessing is coming to the only one who can really deal with our sin the way it needs to be dealt with. And he is willing, brothers and sisters, and he desires, and he is able. And as much as the tragedy is of an alleged man of God living a double life, perhaps the greater tragedy is the community that chose to minimize and cover and conceal rather than turn to the only one who can save us from our sin, the one who begins by exposing and condemning our sin for what it truly is. And this brings us to our second point this morning. By his word, the Lord God's justice rightly punishes our sin. By his word, the Lord God's justice rightly punishes our sin. What does the Lord say to the serpent? He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. He's separating the serpent and placing the serpent in a place that is above and apart from the rest of his creation. The good news of God's word is that the Lord God does not merely expose or condemn our sin. He does something about it. He does something about it. In Scripture, the mark of a good and just judge is his faithfulness to acquit and protect the innocent and to do so by justly punishing the guilty by justly punishing the guilty, and by justly punishing the guilty with a punishment that justly fits the crime. This is the very thing that's dividing America right now, this idea of a justice system where the penalties do not seem to fit the crime. This is what social justice is fighting about, Black Lives Matter is fighting about, Make America Great all of these different groups. Why does one group get a better deal than the rest of us? Why is there a different level of justice and punishment depending on the color of our skin or the socioeconomic status? As we come to God's word, see that God has no double standards and that God always requires consistently and he does this for the elders, and he does this for the leaders of his church. A justice and a judgment where the penalty and the punishment fits the crime. Measure for measure, life for life. This is always God's standard, right from the beginning, right from Genesis all the way through. If you take a life, God will from you require a life. Measure for measure, a justice that gives a just and fitting punishment for every sin and crime and offense. And for the serpent who, by the devil's lies, brought sin's curse and sorrow into the world and brought sin's curse and sorrow into the lives of others, sin's curse and sorrow will now be the serpent's life for all its days. Verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you 
above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And for the serpent who by the devil's lies tried to exalt himself and his word over God's word, to take advantage of others. In verse 14, the Lord decrees, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. We see this for the serpent who exalts and uses the devil's lies and deceits for a minute and a moment to exalt itself. The fitting punishment is to bring this serpent down on its belly. And throughout Scripture, crawling on one's belly and eating dust is a Hebrew idiom. And it refers to what the Lord has, God has brought low, what the Lord God has humiliated, what the Lord God has made unclean and cut off from the life and love of the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, any beasts that crawl on their belly are considered to be unclean. They are not allowed in the covenant community. They are cut off and banished, not only from the Lord, but from the Lord's people. Unclean. The punishment for pride according to God's word and self-deceiving pride is a cursed life of humiliation, defeat, and separation from the life and love of God. That's death. To the serpent who has brought death into the lives of the first man and woman, he's going to have a living death where he's going to continue until the days of his demise separated, despised, cut off, and living out the defeat and humiliation. A constant reminder of being banned from all the other creatures. Now on a side note, it's worth noting that in idolatrous nations, serpents become worshipped as symbols of power and success. And we're living that out with Chinese New Year's. Bruce Lee, Enter the Dragon, the year of the dragon, my hero growing up, dominating with his craftiness and his speed. It's interesting to see with the Chinese horoscope that they've taken this serpent and put wings on it and exalted it and turned it into a power symbol. And that's true not just for Chinese folk, but it's true throughout much of the pagan world. It's helpful to think, brothers and sisters, as we celebrate Chinese New Year's, yes, the Lord does call you to honor your families and celebrate the times and memories that you've had, but you have to realize that you are a community and a people who have been set apart for the Lord. Your family is the Lord, and the celebration that we celebrate is not a dragon or an ox. Let's be thankful for the Asian families we've been given. Celebrate, eat a meal with them. But let's remember that our celebration is the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what draws us together and that's what we celebrate. In Scripture, the serpent becomes a symbol of all that is deceitful, all that is unholy, all that is cursed, and all that is cut off from God and his people. What deceives 
and what falsely exalts for a minute or a moment, only to be brought low and cursed by God for eternity. And that's true, brothers and sisters, not just for serpents. It's true for all our idols, be it our careers, our education, or our ministries. Things that we can use to exalt us for a minute or a moment. Even as in the case of Ravi Zacharias or other ministers. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And we see this throughout Scripture as God's instruction and warning for us. Micah 7, 16 through 17. Micah 7, 16 through 17. If you have your Bibles, it's worth looking at. Micah writes, The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. What's Micah saying here? Well, he's making a reference, obviously, to Genesis 3 and the judgment against the serpent, but he's pointing out, look, God's justice is not for individuals or not just for the serpent. It's for nations, too. And that includes the United States of America. And for those nations who in pride exalt themselves and lift themselves up and celebrate their material, their wealth, and their success, guess what? It's an offense to the Lord, and the Lord is going to bring all the nations low where they will all bow before the king and confess him as Lord, and they will all lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. And for those who trust in the Lord God, brothers and sisters, this is the promise of true justice, and this is the hope. God is going to make things right. He may, for a season, allow these things to continue, but in His perfect time and in His perfect way, He is going to hold all men and all nations and all people and all things accountable. He's not going to let us hide these things. There was a lady who I worked with in my medical practice. She shared with me one day, I would never have known, she was a bright and happy gal, that her brother had been killed by a drunk driver. I was shocked. I would never have guessed. When I asked her what happened, she said, well, nothing happened. It was an off-duty police officer on the East Coast who ran a stop sign, and killed him. And because it was the East Coast and he was an off-duty police officer, it got all swept under the carpet. Now we get horrified at that, brothers and sisters, and we should be. And we get horrified by the things that happen in our nation. But brothers and sisters, it's not just the police who give things a pass. From Adam and Eve to all of us, the general practice and the justice that we typically uphold is a justice system that works well for me and lets me off the hook and lets my family and my friends and people like me off the hook, but points the finger at everyone else. 
And sadly, that can be as much Black Lives Matter and social justice as make America great again. Justice, in the hands of sinners, is always self-serving, where we give ourselves a pass and we point the fingers and hold everyone else to account. But as we come to God's Word, the Lord shows us this is not the case with our God. Because He holds Himself to the same standard of justice that He holds everyone else to. And that, brothers and sisters, is the standard of His Word. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. By His Word, the Lord God's love is costly because He is just. By His Word, the Lord God's love is costly because He is just. One of the questions that people raise frequently, well, if God is just, why does it seem that the righteous or Christians suffer more than the wicked? They get the big cars. Ravi Zacharias gets this million-dollar ministry. They get to do all the things. They get away with it. And the rest of us are left faithful, right? Those who honor the Lord and won't date unbelievers end up single. Those who labor hard in ministry, well, they don't end with, up with as big a retirement or house or car as the rest of the folks. It seems like those who go on missions, they sell their homes for trailers, they end up with the short end of the stick. Pastor Mark, if God is so just, why have Christians suffered over the ages so much and the wicked seem to do just fine? Well, this very question is addressed by the psalmist in Psalm 73. And he makes a connection between the Lord's justice and what we've been talking about, the blessing and the curse of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalmist here, he's sick to his stomach as he considers these things. Where does the breakthrough happen? Verse 16 says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, worn out by it, until I went into the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary of God was the temple, but it's the place where God was present. It's when he drew near to God. Brothers and sisters, we cannot understand justice and we cannot understand love until we draw near to the Lord. Until we fix our eyes, not on the Ravi Zacharias of the world, but on the Lord himself. In fact, one of the devil's greatest ways of discouraging you and others and bringing division in the church, and it's a sure sign, are those times where you get fixated on what is wrong in those around you. Not that we don't expose and condemn and bring them aside, but when that becomes your fixation at the expense of focusing on the Lord. And the remedy, the psalmist says, is when I came into the house or the sanctuary of the Lord, when I drew near, coming into the presence of God, near to God. Drop down to verse 21. He said, when my soul was embittered, dealing with discontent, bitterness, 
when I was pricked in heart. Verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's talking about God. Verse 73, excuse me, 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to beware. Near God. Lord willing, I'm going to try and tie this together for you for Valentine's Day. When the psalmist came in to the temple and drew near to the Lord, what he began to see is that the Lord's blessing is not a great career, a great spouse, a great family, a great boyfriend, a great girlfriend, maybe not even a great church, great friends all the things that we consider blessings from the Lord. And they are, they're small blessings. But he sees the greatest blessing is that he is able to draw near to the one who loves him and whom he loves. And he begins to see that the greatest curse is not when our flesh fails. It is not sickness. It is not illness. It is not the loss of a job or a spouse, though those things are grievous, brothers and sisters. But there is a curse that is greater than that, and it's the curse that's given to the serpent. It's being far from God, far from the one who has loved us. That, brothers and sisters, is the greatest curse of all. And the psalmist, as he's talking about this, what is implied when he talks about, I come into the sanctuary, when he went into the temple, Old Testament, what would he see as he went into the temple? Before he could draw near to the Lord. See, the altar and the sacrifices and the sight of blood and the smell of burning flesh. And before he could come close to the Lord, sacrifices would have to be offered on his behalf for the atonement and the punishment of sin. That there would need to be a substitute, measure for measure, life for life. Otherwise, you could not draw near to the Lord. And it was a constant reminder that the only reason you were able to have fellowship and draw near to the one who loved you is that he had provided a way and a sacrifice and payment for your sin. Measure for measure, life for life. As we come to Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Paul here summarizes for us Isaiah 53. Christ takes our shame. Christ takes our guilt. Christ bears our iniquities. God crushes himself, his own son. 
The justice of the Lord, the costly justice of the Lord, measure for measure, life for life. God, brothers and sisters, when he forgives, doesn't give us a pass. He has struck down and crushed his very own son to pay for the price for your sin and mine so that we can enjoy what Psalm 32 was talking about, the blessing of being forgiven. blessing of drawing near and what Paul says in Galatians so that we can no longer live for ourselves brothers and sisters but we can live for the one who loved us and gave his life for us some may look at Ravi Zacharias and say well he got away with it multi-million dollar ministry died But brothers and sisters, the curse that Ravi Zacharias lived out throughout much of his life and on his dying bed as he went into eternity was that he was living a lie and was separated from the God who had loved him. And now in eternity, he cannot turn the clock back and he must live that out and face his creator with that very truth. What about the victims of abuse? Brothers and sisters, the greatest remedy and the greatest hope and the greatest love and the kindness we can do for those who have suffered abuse at the hands of others and those to whom they have had the curse of sin rub off against them, the shame, the humiliation, the ostracization, all of those things. The Lord God brings them to the cross and says, there is one who understands your pain and sorrow. There is one more innocent than you who knows what it is like to be persecuted, to hurt, to suffer. And because he is a great high priest and because his blood is righteous, he is able to wipe your sins away. He is able to make you whole. He is able to redeem you. He is able to remove the shame, the curse, and the guilt of your sin, but also of others as well, and make you into a new creation and give you the greatest blessing of all. The love of a father who is perfect and holy and will protect you and care for you and set you free from the curse and scourge of sin. Brothers and sisters, the good news of Valentine's Day is not a box of chocolates. As much as I love chocolate, my wife graciously gave me a box of chocolates this morning. And I will celebrate them and enjoy them and and you can come and share them with me along with a good cup of coffee. But brothers and sisters, the good news of Valentine's Day is a God whose love is just. And because it is just, it justifies sinners with a forgiveness that is costly and then in turn calls us to justly forgive and love others. Why? Measure for measure, life for life, what we have received, we are to give to others. And we see throughout the history of the church, the reason the saints were martyred, 
the reason they gave their lives, the reason they delighted in forgiving and blessing the, bless those who cursed them. Why? Because they understood and appreciated that God had given them so much more by way of the cross. Brothers and sisters, what love will you live by? What will you celebrate? Have you been to the cross? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, the love that you have given us is a just love. May we, Lord Jesus, have our eyes open by faith. May we appreciate what you have done, that you have exposed our sin, you have condemned our sin, to show us, Lord Jesus, the price that you paid for our sin so that we in turn might go and bear the burdens of others, that we might bless those who curse us, and that we might, as you did, give love to those who may not seem to deserve it, but because of the cross, Lord Jesus, we give it freely. In your name we pray, amen.